Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin. And Stephanie, for the second time in the course of a month or so, we'll be discussing a new report, and a report, in fact, associated with our friend and colleague, uh, Thomas Junot. Uh, but we have two guests today to talk about this report. Perhaps, uh, Stephanie, I'll let you introduce them. Absolutely. Uh, Tomaj, we've been hanging out a lot on the podcast lately. So if you haven't been listening, Tomaj, of course, is associate professor at the University of Ottawa. He's now leaving the NS tag, but this is actually something totally independent of that. So it's a different report. Don't get confused. And as well, we have Vincent Rigby, who I am very happy to point out is a fellow at Carleton University and also uh, the former National Security and Intelligence Advisor and career bureaucrat working on security issues with the government of Canada who also contributed to this report. So thanks guys for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this report? It's effectively lays out the framework of what could be a national security strategy for Canada. So please tell us a little bit more about this report and who was involved. So the idea for this report was Roland Paris's at first. Roland is my director at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at Ottawa U. He has known Vincent for a long time. I've known Vincent for a long time. He was actually my first boss when I started at National Defense in 2003. We've stayed in touch. So when Vincent retired last year, Roland's idea was that we would set up a task force within GISPIA at Ottawa U co-led by Vincent and myself and including a number of our current or former senior fellows at the university. And their starting point was really that, that we all recognize that national security issues are not being discussed enough in Canada, that we are somewhat complacent in this country, we are facing a growing number of threats, and we can talk about them in, in more detail, but right-wing extremism, rise of China, the war in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of the task force report was to really try to raise awareness to contribute to public debate on the issue. So the task force in total had about a dozen members, former directors of CSIS, like Ward L. Cock and Dick Fadden, other former national security advisors to the prime minister like Daniel Jean, actually the first one, Margaret Bloodworth, former ambassadors to NATO like Kerry Buck, uh, a former ambassador to the UAE, Masoud Hussein, a former senior executive in multiple departments who's been very active in, in, in public debates on China now, Margaret McEwake Johnston. John McNee, who's a former ambassador to the UN, Roland Paris himself, of course, Morris Rosenberg, former deputy minister of foreign affairs and other departments, Nada Seman, former director of FinTrack. So the basic idea is that the credibility of all of these retired folks, we thought would be able to lend more weight to the recommendations we, we made in, in the report, which ultimately was released in late May. If I can just jump in, Stephanie, if it's okay. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but I was... Adding it all up the other day, we had about 10 or 12 people, Thomas, former bureaucrats at a very senior level, averaging about 30-year careers. It's, it's well over 300 years of accumulated experience in the public service at very senior levels. Not necessarily all of it in the SNI community, but for most of them, their bread and butter was SNI. So the experience and expertise around that table was absolutely incredible. And as Thomas was saying, uh, he used to work for me. I used to work for a lot of these people. And we had four meetings and it was like a, a top-notch, high-powered seminar, but a combination of academia and, and public service experience, bringing it together, led by Thomas, who did a, did a great job of hurting all the cats, but really great debate, really informed debate. People didn't agree about everything, but it really powered the report. And I think at the end of the day, it, it's somewhat, it's an absolute, it is unique 
I think, in, in Canada, and that uh, we don't do this kind of thing very much. We see it in the U.S. a lot, where former secretaries of state and secretaries of defense write to the president and say, you got to do this. We didn't write to the prime minister, but we got out there publicly as a group and said that some changes need to really be pursued. And so I think that makes it, I think that makes it a little bit different. And, and um, as Thomas said, there's a, there's a gravitas there. And the, the only other thing that I'd add in terms of the process for the report is that in addition to the discussions that we had before roundtables with the group, Vincent and I also had a series of interviews with current officials in the community, senior officials, because it was important for us to make sure that the recommendations we made, the analysis we were basing the recommendations on, were very current, uh, were as applicable to current and future problems as possible. And since everybody involved with the report has been retired, in some cases for a very short time, uh, but we also wanted to, to make sure that happened. So so these conversations, and there were more than half a dozen of them, were also very, very useful. So you've answered my next question, which is why did you write it? But maybe building on that, how was it received? Because like you said, you consulted within government before release. Obviously, there was a, a lot of uh, media attention to it. So what's been your reaction to how it's been received? We're very happy with how the report has been received. We, to be honest, we expected that there would be some kind of reaction because of all the names involved with the report. And because, as Vincent just said, this is not something that has been done really in, in this country before. But we've been surprised and it exceeded our expectations in terms of media attention. There were literally dozens of media reports, some of it based on interviews with us, others directly on the report. There were more than one stories in the Globe and Mail, in multiple English language media. To be honest, I was surprised by the reaction in French. On the French side in Quebec, there's typically a bit less attention on Ottawa issues, foreign policy, and national security issues, but both paid a lot of attention to the report, which I, surprised me, but, but I think is good and shows that there is a bit of an opening uh, to talk more about these issues. The report was discussed at the highest levels in government. That We briefed it ahead to deputy ministers, to the political level. The prime minister was asked about it in a press conference, and so were others. So overall, I don't know if Vincent wants to add anything, but we were very happy. I, I was extremely happy, and I, I guess in some respects pleasantly surprised, because one of the theses of the report is that we're complacent about national security and nobody seems to really care about it in Canada. And then we get this great press pickup, all the big papers and, and news outlets uh, wanted to interview us. And we've, I think, had some really positive feedback. Um, and even, I think, from inside government, getting some of the feedback from some of my former colleagues and officials and people that, that Thomas knows well. And nobody's come back and said, this is just absolute crap. What, what, what are you guys trying to say here? It's all been, hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. And uh, some focusing on, on, on some issues, others on other issues. But the general response has been, this is extremely helpful. And that's at the most senior levels inside, inside the government. And at the political level too, I think, good to see the PM agreed with the diagnostic at least in terms of what we say in the report. So I, I'm with Thomas, pleasantly surprised. So you've whet our appetite in terms of the origin story of the report. And of course, this is the, I guess, the second report in the last several months to touch on national security policy and frameworks. We had the CG reports uh, spearheaded by Wesley Wark and Aaron Schull. So that would have been a more an academically oriented uh, project. Uh, I think both reports can best be characterized as status quo is not uh, sufficient. I wonder if you pinpoint the key findings and recommendations that uh, you would isolate in your report. It's, it's first of all, I, I like the fact that you've mentioned the CG report, because what I've been saying uh, publicly and to officials and the political level is that you should see these two reports in some respects as bookends. And that uh, the fact that you've had two major reports come out in the space of, of six months on national security, I think says something about the culture in Canada. 
and says something about the threat environment. I think it's the CG report came out in December, and then you had the, the convoy and the blockades in January, February, then you had Ukraine. And so our report comes out in May, and it's it, our report is almost on, on steroids in terms of the, the threat environment and what's been happening. And so that it's even more urgent to, to approach a lot of these national security issues. I think the reports, in terms of differences, I think they complement each other very well. I think I'd say that to begin with. And for the most part, there aren't any striking uh, differences in terms of, of, of approach. And some of the big recommendations in terms of uh, a national security review and a new strategy in terms of some of the governance pieces, they recommended a cabinet committee on national security chaired by the PM. We did the same. Um, I think ours goes down into a little bit more detail on some of the specifics, and I think that's to be expected given that there were a bunch of bureaucrats on the task force. And so you'll see, I think, a little bit more crunchiness and concreteness in terms of some of the recommendations, I think, especially on, on, on governance. I think one of the big recommendations we have is just inside the, the position of the NSIA, National Security Intelligence Advisor, this idea of beefing up the intelligence assessment capability. And, and Thomas and Stephanie have both written about this, merging IAS and, and, and ITAC and having a better common operating picture for government, especially if you're going to have a cabinet committee. I think that one was an example of something quite quite a bit more detailed. Um, and I passed the baton over to Thomas because I think one of the, the big differences between the two reports, notwithstanding their complementarity, is the transparency piece. And I think we really do emphasize that. That was, I think, one of the original themes that everybody around the table identified is the government needs to be more open. It needs to be better at sharing information with the public and with other other enterprises. And, and we really relied on Thomas's expertise in, in that area. But he had me at the word transparency, and then we threw it over to him to build on a lot of that with the help of us. But I suggest that's something that stands out in our report. So we mentioned earlier the kind of media attention that you were getting. And one of the issues that the media really did seem to latch on to was the issue of the United States. And anyone who's been working in this area for some time has been looking at the U.S. and maybe biting our nails a little bit uh, in terms of its reliability, its stability. It's going through a lot right now uh, in terms of its political stability arrangements. There's concern about the alliances, what might happen after the 2022 midterms, all of these things. And the other thing that I think has happened recently is the fact that we're now seeing increasing attacks on Canada from the Republican Party. Canada was like always the, the friendly benign neighbor, but increasingly it might be being seen through a partisan lens. And this could really hurt our foreign policy, our trade policy, but also, of course, our national security policy, which is heavily dependent on the United States. So I guess for some of us, we've been you know saying this since really 2015, 2016, that this is the time to get our house in order because the U.S., is, it's not going away. It's still going to be there, but it's not going to be what it was. But this was yet still the thing that was picked up on the media. So why do you think, despite the fact that maybe we've been saying this, why do you think this was the issue that was maybe picked up on in, in so many of the stories? So that's an interesting question. And ultimately, the interesting point is that the, the U.S. dimension of the report is only a few paragraphs out of almost 40 pages, if you count everything. But it's probably not a surprise that for some of the media, I wouldn't say all of them, but some of the media, that was the main and in some cases the only angle that they picked up on because it is so prominent in our political culture, right? The relations with the U.S. So what we do say in the report is that we are concerned and that there's every reason to be con more concerned in the future about political developments in the U.S. and how they could affect Canada. We refer to democratic backsliding in the U.S. We refer to the scenario of 
Trump or a Trump-like candidate uh, winning in 2024 and what that would mean for American foreign policy. Would it mean even more protectionism? Would it mean even more unpredictability? Would it mean the U.S. withdrawing from NATO, which is something that that would have seen completely far-fetched just a few years ago and as basically science fiction, but is a possibility uh, at some point in the future? All of these scenarios have major implications for Canada, for our prosperity, of course, but also for our national security uh, and our foreign and defense policy in general. So what we do say in the report is that we have to think about these different scenarios. We have to try to prepare ourselves. At the same time, even though we don't go into that much detail, because again, it's not a major portion of the report, uh, we would caution against, A, against the most apocalyptic scenarios, but also against the range of options that we have. Ultimately, we will remain very dependent on the US, and there's just not much we can do about that. Canada has been trying for 50 years to diversify its foreign trade defense policies with little or no success, and there's a very simple reason for that. It's geography. So that there's a bit of a tension here in that we're raising potential problems in the future, but at the same time, there is a limit to what we can do about them. But overall, if a lot of the recommendations, and we can dig into them in more detail after this, but if there is some action on some of the other recommendations, it does position Canada to be a bit more autonomous, a bit more independent in terms of our national security policy, which would allow us to at least a bit better mitigate the negative consequences of some of these difficult scenarios. I totally agree with everything Thomas just said. It was really interesting because when we were drafting the report, Thomas, you'll recall, it was raised by several members that we do have to mention democratic backsliding in the United States as a potential threat down the road. And we had one very former senior politician who mentioned it to us as well, that this is something that we really need to to play up on the report a little bit. And I, in some of the discussions in the task force, I I turned to Thomas and I I said, you do realize that this is going to end up being the headline. (laughs) I could see it. I could see it coming. And it went from, I think, a few lines to two or three paragraphs. But Thomas is right. It's, it's only two or three paragraphs. And sure enough, I think the CBC in particular, it was literally the, the headline. And, and I think some of the headlines were a little bit misleading. I think it's exactly what, what Thomas says. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, look, you've got to have a watching brief on this. We're not saying that as of today, we need to fundamentally change the course of the Canada-U.S. relationship. And that we have to start um, having fundamental change or looking at the U.S. differently. It's just we, we're going to have to keep a watching brief on what happens south of the border. And that's what governments do. Thomas mentioned scenarios. We, we build scenarios. We look for black swans. We, we, we look at what the options are out there. And no, I don't think I'm of the sort of catastrophic the world is coming to an end of the United States view either. We've seen some interesting stuff down there. And even Americans will tell you it's, uh, it's an interesting place at the moment. So I think that we have to watch these trends very carefully and look out for them. And, and especially... 2024, post-2024, we could be back into a world where it will pose some pretty fundamental challenges to the U.S. in terms of security. And we would be really, the government would be not doing its job if it wasn't aware of this. And I can tell you from my time when I was there, being ahead of the election, for example, in 2020, there are all kinds of scenarios being looked at. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody in terms of what might happen. But as we head into 2024 and we've seen all of the stuff over the last, just the last six months, even. We need to pay really careful attention. It could have a big impact. It's one of these low probability, high impact type of events where we don't think that uh, there's going to be a civil war in the United States. But what happens if there was really serious civil disturbances, really serious violent political protests in the U.S. that could potentially spread across our, our borders? We need to be ready. 
maybe given that the this topic was obviously one that you canvassed and is very important, but it was the one upon which the media focused perhaps disproportionately. Maybe it's, we can steer then to the other aspects of the report, which you did intend to communicate quite vigorously. And, 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 and as I read your report, there are really four aspects of it, or perhaps we can talk about national security being supported by three pillars, which is very awkward, I know, but with a foundation. The first pillar is what you call develop new strategies, which I assume means building the intellectual capital to understand what to do to accomplish the objective of national security. You have a number of recommendations under each of these headings. Uh, Then you talk about strengthening existing tools and creating new ones, which I see to be, as I understand your recommendations, the ones that, that are correlated with law reform. And so close to my heart, fixing intelligence to evidence, also dealing with questions of encryption. And so in terms of the operational capacity, of the state to engage in, in national security supporting practices. That seems to be another aspect of your recommendations. You then talk about enhancing governance, which seems uh, to me, if you're going to move forward and be able to increase the capacity to respond to new and evolving threats, you need a good governance system or an interagency process, to use the American term, in which there's a learning within the government that's able to adopt to new circumstances. And perhaps it feeds back to why it is that uh, you view many of our legal tools as being out of date and antiquated, because we don't have this a refractive process, and we end up with 20, 30-year-old statutes uh, developed for an analog and not a digital era. And then finally, and I see this as the foundation, Tom, and you can tell me whether I've read it wrong. You talk about this increasing transparency and engagement aspect, uh, which uh, you advertised at the outside of this of this podcast, in which this doesn't work unless you have the trust and, and support and faith of the broader public and, of course, also the democratic institutions like Parliament. Have I interpreted your report correctly? And are there aspects of those pillars slash foundations that, that you want to uh, draw out for our conversation? I think, I think these are the, the four main sections of the report, and you summarized it very well. Maybe, Vincent, you can start with the strategy part, which we haven't mentioned so far that, that you like to talk about, which is the need for a, a new national security strategy. Absolutely. And and Craig, you did nail it. I, I think you said a three-legged stool, but I think it might be a four-legged stool in terms of strategy, tools, governance, and, and transparency. But those are the fundamentals in our, in our view. My, my personal view, and I think Thomas agrees, we were often asked, what's the number one grouping here or category? What's the number one recommendation? I, we said they're not prioritized, just like the threats aren't prioritized. You have to pull them all together into a cohesive whole. But for me, I think you do have to start with the strategy. And I've been pretty public with this for a while. And, and quite frankly, inside the bureaucracy, I was probably one of the more outspoken deputies. We need a new national security policy. We've not had one since 18 years, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. We've not had a foreign policy statement since 2005. We've had a defense policy review. We're now going through an update. We've had an international development policy review, but there are no substitutes for a national security policy. We've had one national security policy in our entire history as a country, which speaks again the lack of seriousness paid to this to this issue. Our view is do a public review, and we think it should be public because again this will. Educate Canadians, if I can put it that way, because one of our arguments is that one of the reasons why Canadians are complacent about national security is they don't understand the threat and they don't understand what governments do. And that we argue very strongly for a whole of Canada effort. It's not just whole of government, especially not whole of federal government. It's a whole of Canada effort. So if you want a whole of Canada effort, engage the public. So we think that you should do that as as quickly as possible. Then our argument is that it doesn't have to be a full up integrated review like they did in the UK where it's just one review with all the component parts jammed inside it. But there has to be, there have to be close linkages between national security, foreign policy, defense policy, development policy, economic stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And I have been, again, I've been public about this. I, I was a little bit 
disappointed that there's now a defense update that is completely separate and uh, unlinked with anything else. And so it's not nestled in a national security context. There's no foreign policy that is acting as a, a bit of an umbrella for our defense policy. It's siloed once again, and it's not connected to anything. So I would argue, and I think we argue in the paper, that this has got to be as integrated as it can be, if not full up IR UK style, and make sure that we've got the linkages. Because we, we argue for a very comprehensive, expanded definition of national security. I, I've been using that cliched line that it's not your grandparents' national security. It's, it's got so much in it now that uh, you have to have these, you'd have to have these linkages. So start with that strategy, give Canadians a strategy, then you can start to develop the tools and as part of that and the governance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's my two cents. You feel that a national security policy should be broad. I think when we talk about national security in Canada, it's typically means the, the, the national security intelligence community, which is we think of it in terms of looking in rather than looking out at threats. Or when we do look out, it's how they affect the things in Canada. Whereas defense policy is the, the way it's much more about looking out, defending Canada from external threats and things like that, even if much of defense policy these days is support to the civilian power in terms of national emergencies. So I guess I was wondering, your approach is to take a very broad one to combine what I would traditionally consider to be national security community with the defense community and, and have an overarching broad strategy. And I'm wondering if, if that's the right approach because so many of the things that we need to do in the national security community are things like fixing the intelligence to evidence problem, creating certain cabinet committees, it's like fine grained tuned stuff that, that really we should be focusing on. And just bringing in defense, which has its own set of problems. We just had yet another report released very recently on, on problems with the, with the culture in the Department of Defense, you know, should we, and not to mention that, the procurement problems, the issues with recruitment, retention, all these kinds of things. Do we really want to combine all of these things together in one report, or are we better off taking a more narrow view of national security in Canada, and if we're going to do so with a view of fixing some of the challenges we have? I, th I think the answer is somewhere in between, and I don't think that we take the completely uh, comprehensive view in the report. What we suggest, and uh, building on what Vincent said for the previous question, is that national security policy, foreign policy, defense policy, of course, they are distinct, even though it's blurry lines in between. It's not a clear demarcation. But reviewing these policies, thinking about them should be done ideally in parallel and should be done, period. So one criticism that we have now is that there is a defense policy update in the absence of a national security policy update and a foreign policy update. In this report, we did touch on a couple defense issues because we thought it was interesting to just bring them in, but we do see them as, as clearly distinct. Uh, we did want to mention the Arctic because there are there's a blurring of security and defense issues in the Arctic. We brought in issues of Canada-US relations because when you talk about can-US relations from a security perspective, it's hard to completely ignore NORAD modernization and some of these issues, but by and large, and, and we had these discussions with the task force, every time defense issues came up, we did decide mostly to, to park them on the side. But conceptually, you can say they're completely intertwined or they're completely separate. In practice, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, I think that's right. And to be fair, it is hard to think of national security challenge vis-a-vis -vis China without thinking about either defense or foreign policy issues. Like, I grant that. One of the concerns I have is that I think in Canada, one of the things that hinders us in the foreign policy, national security and defense space is that there seems to be 
this prioritization of everyone getting along, everyone having the same message at all times. And I can see the advantage of that, right? Having a coherent approach to, to issues is really good. But other countries don't seem to ha like really care in the same way, like the United States, the United Kingdom. Departments tend to be a little bit more independent, right? Not everyone has to be saying the exact same thing at all times. The, there's a lot of differentiation. Uh, a lot of things are deferred to global affairs, even if they're cybersecurity issues, because they're seen as international policy. And so I guess what I worry about when we do these kinds of things is trying to get, if, if we spend a lot of time trying to get everyone to sing from the same hymn sheet when it comes to national security issues, it just seems to create a lot of blocks along the way. And Vincent, I would defer to you on this because you actually had to live it for a long period of time. Listen, they're, they're, they're good points. And Thomas and I, joked throughout the process that if you wanted to get bureaucrats to run for the exit door, talk about governance and machinery or talk about reviews. And I know from my own experience, because again, I spoke a lot about reviews when I was in government. I've, I've been through a number of the defense policy statement back in 2005. I was the lead on the international development piece. I bear the scars of a lot of those processes. They are tough to do. Even a stovepipe defense policy or a stovepipe foreign policy they're really tough to do. A lot of blood's left on the floor and bureaucrats do tend to go and politicians as well. Oh my God, here comes a three, four year review. It's just going to end up as a report on a shelf. And guess what? It's going to be overtaken by events within six months. And I think that there's a lot of hesitancy right now, given what happened with Russia and Ukraine, people are saying, oh, we have this big pivot to Asia, but then look what happened with Russia invading Ukraine. And suddenly if we've done it, if we've done a full up review and said, we're going to do a big pivot to Asia, where would we be now? My, my response to that is that these reviews can be done quickly if you ring fence them. And you say, you, if the government says you've got a year and you will do three months of very intensive consultation, intensive, but at the same time, very carefully limited, and that you, you put this out uh, as quickly as you possibly can. It can get done. It, it requires a, a lot of coordination. We uh, had a lot of conversations with the Brits about how they, they did their integrated review, the political level and the bureaucratic level working very closely in coordination, especially between Privy Council Office, uh, their Privy Council Office and their Prime Minister's Office. It can be done, but they're not easy to do without a doubt. Again, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Oh God, a review, is it worth it at the end of the day? I don't think you need to- Oh, I, to be clear, I absolutely think it, it's, that's what I love about this project. Like, it is absolutely fundamentally important. I agree with it 100%. Yeah. I just worry that every time you, the government hears the word review, the first thing they think of is, as you just pointed out, the coordination what? nightmare across the board. Does it have to be this hard? Other countries put out yearly reviews. They don't have to be, like the Strong, Secure, Engaged document was a huge document. I think it was a great piece, actually. I thought, and actually it still, I think, is important and relevant, even if we're updating it. But that's good. That's what we should be doing. We should be updating it every three to four years, not every 10. And so I guess I, we have these muscles and we build them up. And then we, once it's all over, we go, Ugh. like my approach to, to fitting in, in summer dresses, you gear up for the diet, get in the dress and then let it all go again. What we need to be doing is actually putting it out, smaller reviews, updating all the time, 20 page documents, not 200 page documents. Well, and I'm not suggesting it's going to be a 200 page document. And, and I'm quite comfortable with what Thomas said. And I think what I said at the outset as well, it, it can, there can be different reviews, but as long as there are linkages. And I remember when we went through that horrible exercise back in 2005, there was 
a separate defense policy statement, a separate foreign policy statement, but there was also a chapeau document, which may or may not have been the greatest document in the world, but you can tie these things together. Yeah, that's the problem right now is that because it's been so long since we've done 18, 18 bloody years, I think in the bureaucracy and at the political level as well, it's, oh, oh my, it's been so long that the, the mere thought of doing one now sends people screaming from the room with their hair on fire metaphorically speaking. I agree. These should be done on a regular basis. You can do a big one and then update it every three or four years. But your point about not everybody else around the world is terribly well coordinated, but they should be and they want to be. And that's why the US does do these strategies. The UK does these strategies. The Germans are now going to do a national security review because of Ukraine. I think they they have to be done. And as to whether they should be all in one comprehensive or not, I go back to Thomas's point. I think he's bang on. The threats are so interconnected now that it's very difficult to disentangle the threads and go, okay, there's my defense policy thread. There's my, there's my foreign policy thread. At the end of the day, a lot of this starts overseas. So you have to start with foreign policy and then bring it back closer, closer to home. Russia is the perfect example. Yes, Russia is a, a military threat, but they also do foreign interference. They also do espionage. They also do cyber. They also do all kinds of stuff in the Arctic. Some of it is purely military, other stuff as well. The same with the Chinese. And as for the CAF and what they do at home versus what they do overseas, one of the things that I've been talking about, and Stephanie, I think you talked about it as well, is look at the convoy back in January, February. What's going to be the role of the CAF? What if it gets really bad next time? You actually do have to call out the military. What's their role going to be? And I don't think anybody wants to talk about that because they don't want to replay 1970 or 1990. But I don't think we should think of the CAF purely as international. They've got a big domestic role. So anyway... I'm of a view of make it as integrated as you possibly can, but it doesn't have to be just one soup to nuts review, but at the very least have some linkages. I don't think in the defense policy update right now, you're going to see those linkages and that's, that's unfortunate. Oh, I'm wrong. <laughs> so thanks very much for that assessment, uh, Vincent and, and Thomas. Now, so the, the natural follow on though, is let's assume that this big lift happens and, and there is a, a report, you arrive at the, the strategy plank of your series of reforms. The question then is what happens? So you mentioned, Vincent, the terrifying prospect of yet another report sitting on a shelf, which by the way, is, is, uh, is the sort of thing I, I now take personally. And so what is the way in which you can take good ideas in a government uh, context and convert them into action uh, that has a meaningful impact in achieving the objectives? Now, I would say doing the math here that roughly seven or 8% of your recommendations are on fixing law here, there, and everything. Uh, but the majority of your recommendations are really about things like culture and, and changing the allocation of resources and determining prioritizations, et cetera. And so I wonder if you could make some observations about how one gets this done in the present context. I guess a lot of it is, is it is culture. And I, I think that's a word that's bandied around a lot and, and people don't always define it, but I, I do feel that we are lacking a security intelligence culture in this country. And that's leading to a lot of the complacency. And I know from my own time in government over 30 years of it in various SNI departments, unless you're in the core SNI community, people don't really care about national security. If you're the Department of Heritage or the Department of Transport or you're the Department of Natural Resources, like national security hasn't really got anything to do with us. I would argue just the opposite. <laughs> I think national security touches, including on those three departments I just mentioned, national security impacts every single department. So we need to do a better job inside government of briefing the threat, of reaching out to, to other departments to talk about these sorts of things. I remember 
not too long into the job, the clerk asked me to brief what was known as deputies breakfast. It meets once a week on Wednesdays, I think. And uh, all the deputies around the table and he said, Vince, as the NSA, you should come in and brief the threats and what national security is about. And, and I thought that was a great idea. And it probably should be done every three or four months to do a threat update, brief cabinet more often. Uh, which I did as, as, as NSIA, have better engagement with the political level. So it's the information sharing, the talking about it, and just it's a constant day-to-day building up of culture and, and information. But the governance piece is important. And, and I think it starts, again, like I said, with strategy. It starts there at the strategic level. But I think in terms of governance, it starts at the political level. And if you want to have momentum on national security issues, if you want to have regular sort of review and and uptake on national security, implementing government decisions, building the culture. I honestly believe that a cabinet committee on national security would help. I I think it would be a huge step. We don't have one in Canada. We toyed with it in the past at various times, but all of our five eyes allies have some kind of a body in that respect. We don't, but if you have a committee of the core public safety or national security ministers chaired by the PM meeting every two weeks, talking about the threats before they're right in your face, and developing responses instead of responding on an ad hoc basis like we do now with the incident response group, I think that would be a a game changer. I really do. And a lot of people go, ah, it's just another body. I actually think this committee could drive stuff because you got the PM engaged. And from talking to my colleagues in Australia and the UK, they say that these bodies are game changers. They can be real game changers in terms of changing the culture and getting momentum on national security issues and keeping it on the agenda, keeping it on the radar. It's not hit and miss. You don't have to wait for the for the crisis. So Thomas, I'd pass it over. And on, on governance, we make a number of fairly detailed recommendations to try to make these changes more sustainable, uh, more serious, more in-depth. One of the changes we make is at Public Safety Canada is the subject of endless debate and controversy inside of Ottawa. It's a broad portfolio, not such a big department, but a, a, a pretty broad portfolio. The coordination capacity, the policy capacity of public safety is a bit weak. And that's a point we make in the report that there's a need to to think about how public safety does its job and to strengthen it, not just in terms of more resources, but also in terms of more clarity of its mandate. We talk about a number of human resources points. Everybody rolls their eyes. As soon as you talk about human resources, there's a reason why Stephanie and I have a full chapter in our book on human resources because- The most interesting chapter. The most interesting (laughs) chapter because it's important. And, And the fact that people roll their eyes when you talk about human resources is symptomatic of the fact that these issues have tended to be neglected and that there are a number of problems uh, in the community that are there and that are being either ignored or neglected. Security clearances. The process is a complete mess. There's a massive backlog that has huge implications in terms of morale, in terms of recruitment, in terms of retention, etc. Recruitment remains a challenge. Retention remains a challenge. And I I could go on. I'm not going to keep on going. But these are issues that also need to be tackled, whether it's as part of a full national security review that Vincent just talked about, or separate from that, it's not the kind of sexy issue that brings attention, but that also has to be taken care of if, as Vincent was saying, we want to build that stronger culture, that stronger literacy, there needs to be these micro foundations that are still too weak now. So I want to thank both of you for coming on the podcast today. I'm going to really recommend that everyone reads the report. We're going to link to it in the show notes that so you, you can, if you haven't already read it and, and you should take a look because I think it's, what's really good about it is that it's very accessible. It really goes over the issue. There's a threat environment piece. There's recommendation pieces there. And so thanks for your good hard work. Again, more volunteer work for you, Tama, but well done. I just want to mention on the point that you said on the accessibility of the report, the report was edited 
uh, and, and revised uh, in terms of its language by Madeleine Drowan, who's also a fellow with us at GISPIA and is the former correspondent for The Economist uh, here in Canada. And she did an absolutely fabulous job in terms of doing exactly what you just said, making it not bureaucratic and not academic in terms of its language. And I think that made a big difference. But you know, I do have to point out academic work is very awesome and interesting and everyone should read it at all times. And so is bureaucratic. <laughs> I want you to count how many acronyms are in that report. I think it's three of that. Well done. Well done. Very well done. <laughs> well, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Cheers.